Hello, I hope you enjoy this recording and consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, my talks are offered entirely without charge and supported by donations only. Please feel invited to stop by dharmapunksnyc.com, that's spelled with an X, to check out a chapter from my book, Unsubscribe, which arrives November 2017. And thank you. Uh, tonight's talk is about how we can use consciousness to, and especially cognitive tools, to literally change the brain. And we'll be paying specific attention to uh, new research that shows ways that we can actually undo uh, negative compulsive behaviors and habits that cause us uh, some form of distress or discomfort in our interpersonal lives. This whole rubric or topic falls under the category of neuroplasticity, and there's been a lot of really wonderful studies that show literally that the brain is not only molded by the early events of childhood, the first roughly 24 to 30 months, are the brain is exceptionally neuroplastic. It's being formed by all of the uh, experiences that the infant has with caretakers. Genetics, of course, play a significant role in the shaping of the adult brain. Other factors, including exercise, nutrition, uh, any kind of uh, concussive brain events, but also now there's significant studies that show how we use consciousness, how we think and how we focus attention actually uh, plays also a significant role in the synaptic circuits that are wired that will become dominant in adult life. Specifically again, how we focus attention and how we think. It's kind of an important subject because when it comes to attempts to change behavior while bottom-up psychologies such as somatic and sensory motor therapies are exceptionally effective, but they have to be done in a very expensive therapeutic environment. Whereas learning how to think in ways that literally uh, rewire the brain in positive ways that allow for, especially the topic tonight will be uh, interpersonal growth, is something that we don't need to do with a therapist. A lot of the tools I'll be talking about tonight stem from early Buddhism, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, and some work by neuropsychologists such as Jeffrey Schwartz at UCLA. So one way that thoughts can negatively alter the brain is that by thinking of a negative experience or activating circuits that hold a negative memory, we can make it more likely to fire even more frequently and cause even more challenging behaviors as a result. I'll give you an example. If you're in grade school 
and you had the normal grade school experience, which is you had sometimes you felt bullied or actually were bullied by peers, but other times you were welcomed and uh, had friendships develop. Due to the brain's negativity bias, you are more likely to filter out the positive experiences and remember the negative ones. So already, simply having a normal childhood with positive and negative events already just due to the fact that the brain is shaped to remember threats and painful experiences because, after all, that's what keeps us alive. Knowing which areas in which people were unsafe is far more to our survival advantage than remembering positive experiences. So the brain, especially the amygdala, uh, tends to focus on negative events and tends to deeply engrave them into the right um, uh, lateral, uh, what is it, temporal lobe and left using the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain that holds memories and forms memories. So suppose you have these events, this bullying, uh, you, rem you remember them more clearly because they're negative events. And then when you think about them due to the common traits of the way people think and use cognition, it actually makes it even more likely that these negative experiences from your life will seem even worse than they were before you started thinking about them. If you look at all the different cognitive distortions that adults have, for example, we have what's called overgeneralization. We tend to take single experiences and blow them up into indictments. So we'll say things like, I went to France once. Well, okay, I was only at the airport, but the people there sucked. I'm never going to go there again. Uh, I, I ate Vietnamese food once. It was terrible. It's just a bad cuisine, whatever. <laughs> we tend to use single experiences and conflate them into wholesale beliefs. So a single negative experience can be easily conflated, amplified into a sort of uh, a wholesale indictment on an entire arena of exploration in life. Personalizing is we have the tendency also to believe that things that happen are happening not just to everyone, but are happening specifically. I'm experiencing them because there's something about me that uh, is attracting all these negative events. For example, go into work and somebody's cross or you meet somebody and they're, uh, they give you the short shrift. They're very judgmental. It's very tempting to believe that it's something about you that they are doing that to you. And very frequently we don't tend to consider the possibility that that person is just doing it globally to everyone they meet that day. So when we take things personally, again, we tend to then amplify negative experiences into this whole litany of other negative experiences that have happened to us. And so again, we tend to take single negative events, we tend to essentially concretize them and make them into full-sale worldviews that make it even more likely that these negative experiences will be reactivated. And then as a result, it turns into behaviors like conflict avoidance, avoidance coping, social withdrawal, and so forth. It's worthwhile to know that thinking is very similar to metaphorically 
um, skiing. When somebody first, I don't ski, so I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, but this analogy <laughs> just came up to me today. Or when you, somebody sees, I would gather a slope where there's no grooves or treads, the first time they ski down it, it's very unlikely that somebody will see those single, uh, what were they called, uh, tracks, very good, tracks. <laughs> indentations. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> tracks. Engra engravements, I was about to use. All right, tracks. <laughs> so anyway, the first time somebody leaves a set of tracks in the snow, it doesn't look like much, but if the next person skis in those tracks, and then a third person, then those tracks become an actual route, and following people will be increasingly more likely to follow that route down a slope. So every time we think a thought, um, it's no different than any other neural event. The thought is activating circuitry in your left interpretal lobe, the ventral medial and other parts of your brain with Broca and Wernicke's version, and they're all firing and they're all essentially solidifying. And the more you think a thought, the more likely it is that you will think that thought in the future. The work of Joseph Ledoux at the Emotions Lab in, and at NYU has been doing a lot of work on how memories are engraved and then how they can be even changed. But it's very difficult if we set up a neural pattern. So that's a negative way that thought can uh, be detrimental. It can take single experiences and blow them up into essentially uh, entire uh, fear constructs or complexes that lead us to avoid entire areas of life simply by the, by the way we think about a single experience. Um, but there's also ways that thought can actually change the brain positively, and that's what I'd like to focus on tonight. So I'm going to first give you an example of the kind of behavior that we'll be addressing, hopefully skillfully with thought, and how the negative behaviors start. And we're going to, I'm going to focus tonight on compulsive behaviors, i.e. addictions or <coughs> deeply ingrained habits, and talk also a little bit about obsessive thoughts. So suppose you're a child and you grow up in a family where your caretakers, your parents, don't always act in really uh, safe, reliable, um, easy to grasp ways for a child. Suppose the child begins to feel a lack of control, a lack of input into the decisions or it even feels at times not seen by its parents. So the child becomes anxious and then that feeling, which is all largely right hemispheric, it's embodied, it's a feeling of anxiety and fear. It doesn't so far have any thoughts associated. The left hemisphere of the child's brain now kicks in because the job of the left hemisphere interpreter 
as we know from Michael Gazaniga, is to explain why we feel the way we do and why things are happening in the world around us. So this feeling of anxiety caused by an unreliable parenting, uh, the left hemisphere turns into a story of, oh no, maybe my parents will get divorced, maybe they'll split up, maybe they'll forget about me, uh, maybe my family will you know, fall apart. So it's the left hemisphere's job simply to, ex simply to explain why we're experiencing what we're experiencing. It's a, so it adds on this thought. The more it thinks these thoughts, these worrying thoughts, to explain the underlying anxiety, now the child has physical discomfort and cognitive obsession. So it's a really unpleasant state of affairs. And so what the child will do to distract herself or himself from all of this internal stress is the child will develop routines to essentially placate or create a feeling of control to alleviate the underlying anxiety and the obsessive thoughts. These routines are things like counting, not stepping on cracks, repeating words, uh, tapping, the child will fidget, the child will sometimes start um, all kinds of uh, things like turning on and off light switches in a room. If you haven't guessed, very often these routines in adult life can turn into what's called obsessive compulsive disorder. The obsessive thoughts of lack of control are hardwired to the compulsive behaviors which alleviate the obsessive thoughts for a little while. So again, the child feels its parents are unreliable, so it feels anxious. The anxiety is registered by the thinking part of the brain, the left hemisphere, which turns it into worrying thoughts. Now the child's internal experience is so discomfort and comfortable that the child develops soothing routines, such as turning on and off life switches, counting, not counting steps from the front door to the school bus and from the school bus to the school. Does anybody recognize any of this? You're all looking at me like I've lost my mind. Okay, great. <laughs> so suppose you had some routine in your life that at some point that you couldn't control or you did habitually. It's definitely because that routine became associated with soothing underlying anxiety and distress. Now over the course of repeating the link between the obsessive worrying thoughts, the emotional anxiety, and the behavior. In, by adult life, that child has grown to an adult that has now literally created a circuit. That circuit connects regions in the insula and the right, that's what notes the anxiety, the right orbital frontal, which turns it into an emotion, then the left hemisphere, and you don't have to remember any of this, I just like doing it because it helps me understand what the fuck I'm talking about, I'm a geek. So left hemisphere thought, then crisscrosses back to this area that controls one's um, uh, habits called the striatum. It's an amazing part of the brain deep in the basal ganglia, and all of the routines and habits and repeated behaviors are organized there. And 
To change one of those habits takes a lot of effort. You have to do something or stop doing something for 21 days at least for the striatum to start neurally uncoupling all the circuitry that makes a habit. That's why when people give up smoking or give up um, other uh, habits that they want to address, it generally takes three weeks across the board. That's considered to be the magic number because neurally it takes about three weeks to begin the process of unwiring deeply ingrained habits. So, fortunately, there are ways to, with cognition, to actually begin the process of unwiring some of our most uh, compulsive behaviors. Now, if you think that, because I've used examples that are similar to obsessive compulsive desire, uh, disorder, excuse me, <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's an inner joke or something. It's just obsessive compulsive desire. Uh, <laughs> all right. So uh, you don't have to be somebody who cleans obsessively or compulsively, I should say, or you know, wipes down counters or neurotically orders all the cutlery just so, or has processes and routines that you live by. You can be somebody like me. I'm a fucking slob. And nobody would look at me and say, oh, that guy has any kind of, you know, com obsessive, compulsive uh, tendencies. But on days that are really shitty, uh, or at least I have to do things that I really don't like to do, I feel this incredible urge to, uh, to literally go to these stupid thrift shops in my neighborhood and buy a, a T-shirt that I don't need. It's a deeply ingrained, like, neural routine. And some days I uh, can literally do these practices and literally unwire and override the behaviors. Some days not as well. Actually, today I got this. <laughs> I, got, I actually like this. It was, it was, it was $12. <laughs> but, uh, and I've already gotten a couple of compliments today. <laughs> but some, uh, <laughs> So I, I actually, had the, I was at the, the dentist having this procedure, and I was like, oh, my God, my teeth, they're probably all going to fall out. I forgot an appointment I had today because I was at the dentist, and so I was feeling kind of, kind of, so I went to the thrift store, and this didn't work today, but sometimes this practice, I'm going to tell you, does work. <laughs> I just got to be honest here. I'm not going to tell you that this shit works all the time. Okay, so... We found that if you have an obsessive thought and you couple it with a compulsive routine or behavior, that they become hardwired together and they create circuits that are... And by the time people become to adult life, if it becomes an addiction, addictions are different from habit because addictions are create feedback loops. You don't even need to have any external event happen to trigger the underlying anxiety, to trigger the obsessive thought, 
to trigger than the compulsive behavior. For example, as somebody in 23 years of, uh, of recovery from a drug and alcohol addiction, I can tell you that there was, uh, in my 20s, long uh, decades of periods where nothing negative had to happen to me, yet every day I would have that underlying anxiety which would then activate obsessive worrying thoughts which would then create the or trigger the compulsive need to drink. So alcoholism, drug abuse, eating, uh, shopping, uh, even uh, in anxious attachment, people who have a tendency to be very anxious in relationships have deeply ingrained um, circuits which when they're in an early relationship uh, and they don't get connected with or somebody doesn't return a message or a phone call or, or connect with them, they start repeatedly checking for texts or messages. Sometimes when people feel very lonely, they tend to trigger a compulsive routine of going on social media or turning on Netflix or television as a way to soothe and essentially remove the underlying feelings of loneliness. So it's my contention that by the time we reach adult life, all of us, in one form or another, have certain compulsive behaviors which we over-rely on as a way not to feel negative emotions such as loneliness, grief, disappointment, frustration, and so forth. So the good news is that a lot of research by neuroscientists has shown just how effective the brain, especially thinking, cognition can be in addressing compulsive behaviors. There was a group of seven uh, neuropsychologists and they wrote a paper called, oh my God, why am I even bothering? Uh, mechanisms for cognitive and uh, dialectical behavior involve robust and extensive increases in brain network connectivity. I'm sure you wrote that down. So um, the idea that they found is simply by Cognitive practices, they found that people can literally develop new circuits in the brain and unwire others. A greater or more interesting example was done at Harvard Medical School by somebody named Alvara Pasquale Leon. And he used TMS scans to show that, he, what he did is he found 80 people, I think it was, and he broke them into three groups. One group he said to do absolutely nothing. And he took a brain scan before the two months and then after the two months. That's your control group. The second group he said, I want you to practice piano 20 minutes a day, every day for two months. And then at the end of the two months, he did another brain scan on these people. And he showed, in fact, that practicing the piano literally changed the motor cortex that controls the piano playing fingers. So you can literally see changes in the motor cortex, growth and gray matter. But here's what's cool. There was a third group. And he told the third group, don't, don't go anywhere near a piano, but just visualize playing a piano. Don't move your fingers. Just 
think about playing a piano. And after the two months, their brains changed as significantly as those who actually practice playing a piano. So just thinking about playing the piano literally started to neurally change the shape of their motor cortex. That's pretty astonishing that it happened in only two months. So we're going to today, in our meditation, I'm going to talk about the three steps of rewiring your brain. So here are the three steps. The first is that to undo uh, compulsive behavior, you one, what we practice is labeling. Whatever you're doing, label the experience, especially before you give in to the compulsive behavior. So a classic example would be if you need to have a donut every time you're about to go into work, or you eat habitually when you, are, you come home and you're alone and you feel lonely, label at that very moment, feeling the need to eat, feeling driven to uh, buy a donut. You could have another example of if you have a tendency to, in early relationships, worry or think about what the person you're dating is thinking about you. Or, on the other hand, if you're avoidant and you have a tendency in relationships to think uh, of all the reasons the relationship will become engulfing and smothering and how the hell am I going to get out of this, then note that. I'm feeling engulfed. I'm having engulfing thoughts. Just label what the experience is without judging it. <laughs> Labeling activates a part of your left hemisphere which allows you to step back and observe your thinking. In essence, it essentially allows you to begin the process of detaching from the thought and actually gives you a new way of wiring that thought or decoupling that thought. The second step in addressing compulsive behaviors through meditation alone is to, when you are distressed, when you are in a state of wanting to compulsively do something, bring all of your attention into your body and find the area of your body that is most tense, tight, constricted. This is developing what's called distress tolerance. Distress tolerance is one of the foundations of dialectical behavioral therapy. The Buddha talked about this constantly in Kaya Gatasati, he said that awareness of the body is one of the most important tools to ending suffering in life. Because if you can pay attention to your body and observe it, a lot of the emotional activations we're experiencing are simply seeking attention. And if instead of turning distressing states into worrying negative thoughts, if we instead go back to the body, feel the distress, and learn how to be with the distress, we can actually undercut that tendency to turn anxiety, loneliness, sadness, frustration into all of their thought equivalents. For example, when people feel angry, they, which is a physical experience, they turn anger into resentments. When people feel grief, they turn grief and sadness into self-pity. 
when people feel um, uh, lonely uh, and disconnected, they turn it into stories like, nobody likes me, I'm unpopular. You get it. We generally find somatic experiences to be so difficult and so painful because in our childhoods, physical emotions were so, so overwhelming. By the time we reach adult life, we automatically, when we start to feel something uncomfortable, we immediately translate it into a thought. Thought makes us feel like we have more control. It makes us feel like it deflects attention from the physical to just the uh, disembodied. Uh, and yet, in doing that, we actually wind up deeply ingraining and re-triggering the negative emotion over and over and over again. So what we want to do is stop that process of turning somatic emotional experiences into obsessive thinking. We want to bring our awareness back into the body without judgment, find the stress, relax around it as the Buddha taught, and then breathe into the areas that feel tight, whether it's in your throat, or in your chest, or in your belly, or in your face, just breathe in and begin to soften and relax. The third and final step to beginning to neurally <coughs> unwire uh, compulsive behaviors is to practice what's called thought substitution. The Buddha talked about this very frequently in the, uh, a sutta called Ending Obsessive Thinking the 20th Sutta of the Middle Link Discourses. But it's also been showed by um, the effectivity of thought substitution has been shown by so many different clinical psychologists. The famous marshmallow tests that were given to uh, children who were six years old, and what they would do is put a marshmallow in front of the child and say, if you can wait five minutes, until we come back into the room, we will give you another marshmallow. So you get two, simply for waiting five minutes. And they did longitudinal studies, and the kids that could have impulse control and not eat the marshmallow and waited to get a second marshmallow, these were the children that fared well in school and were popular and were confident in their endeavors. And the other kids who immediately ate the marshmallow, <laughs> those were the ones that struggled in school and were, uh, had higher incidence of drug and alcohol abuse. And when Michelle was, because the, the differences between this two, these two types, those that eat the marshmallow and those that don't, were so, so the ramifications were so extreme that uh, Michelle, Walter Michelle followed up with other uh, tests and he videoed the children. He found that the children that didn't eat the marshmallows simply did one thing differently than the children that did. And what it was is they just looked somewhere else in the fucking room. <laughs> the children that ate the marshmallow tried to do it by willpower. They looked at that marshmallow. <laughs> And if you try to do that, it never works. 
if you want to unwire a thought, what we need to do is after we notice that we're thinking it and relax the stress beneath it in the body, the third thing we need to do is we need to actually change what we're thinking about. So uh, Dan Wegner at Harvard did his famous study with, he gave people the uh, test where he said, Think about white polar bears, he said to one group, and then to another group he said, don't think about white polar bears. The people who said don't think about white polar bears did it more frequently than those who he said gave permission to think about it. But then he asked them, okay, can you stop thinking about white polar bears on your own using any way you could, and none of them could stop thinking about white polar bears until he said, he pulled down a window image of a red Volkswagen and he said you can think about red Volkswagens and then he asked them were you thinking about white polar bears and none of them were so the only way to get rid of an obsessive thought is to think about something else so in uncoupling a thought obsessive thought that triggers a compulsive behavior the key is to one, again, label the thought, to deactivate the physical stress beneath it so that the compulsive behavior will not be activated, and then three, change the thought, okay? So that's what we're going to do in today's meditation. We're going to do some ancient Buddhist practice and some very new cognitive and dialectical behavioral therapy tools. So, find a very comfortable seated position. (laughs) Closing the eyes. If you don't like closing the eyes, just look at the ground in front of you. So, we'll take three breaths to start the practice in unison. So... Take a full in-breath through the nose and expand the chest. And while you do that, lift your shoulders up, 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 until you're practically touching your ears and holding it there. And then as you breathe out through the mouth, drop the shoulders like they've suddenly become exceptionally heavy. A second in-breath through the nose and tucking, holding, drawing in the belly, really taut, holding it in. And then breathing out through the mouth. Just release the belly so that it's really pliant and soft and round. Nothing held in. And for the third breath, squinch all the muscles in the face, pinching the eyes, the nose, the mouth, locking the jaw, tightening the fists, the buttocks, the toes, squinching everything. And as you breathe out, relax all those muscles. And then take a quick survey of your body and see if, there's anything you can adjust 
try to start your meditation with a really kind, caring, compassionate self monitoring in a very, very tender way, just caring about your comfort and ease. So for the first part of the meditation, just see if you can keep awareness as present as possible. One way to settle the mind and stay present is to find a set of ongoing sensory experience that you don't really have to create that just is happening on its own. So that, of course, can be the body breathing. And if you do so, observe the breath in the body. A wonderful breath for that is the three-pointed breath. Simply breathe in through a spot just beneath the navel and feel your belly expanding and then the chest and then breathing out, relaxing the muscles and the, the, allowing the chest to deflate and then the belly to relax. In-breaths associated with life and energy, out-breaths associated with release, relaxing, letting go. Try to put your effort or the attention to the out-breath. People actually tend to drift away from the breath more often while they're breathing out rather than breathing in. So just allow the in-breath to happen. Don't pull it in and don't feel such a need to focus your efforts there, but when you start breathing out and you're at the very tail end of the out-breath, that's where you place the effort in because that's the time, the relaxing, letting go of the breath, the ease, that the mind will very often be most vulnerable to an intrusive thought. If you do get lured away, which is very normal and, of course, very natural for the default setting of the mind when we're in a safe space and there's no pressing task in front of us, then the mind very often, is, we've trained it over the years to think. So to develop tools of ease and relaxation and attention, we have to override that association that being comfortable 
not having anything to do that's pressing means we have to start thinking. So if you do get trapped by a thought, just notice it. No judgment, no frustration, no impatience. Just treat it like a small awakening. And gently bring your awareness back to your breath. If you really do tend to get very distracted by thoughts, another strategy is to count one on the in, two on the out, three on the in, four on the out breath. And when you get to five on the succeeding in breath, start counting back down, four on the out, three on the in. Now, if you don't like working with the breath, just listen to the sounds coming up from the street. Try to hear the closest sound and then the farthest sound away. And then relax and just let sounds appear or arrive in consciousness, just allowing sounds into the mind like it's a screen door and the sounds are wind passing through. Don't hold on to any sound, just keep the mind spacious, very big, and allow every external sensation, especially sounds, just to pass through awareness. And if you still find yourself in this meditation prone to thinking, then try to not only hold sounds and awareness, but contact sensations, feeling the clothes in your body, the weight of your body pressing into the earth, contact between the legs and the floor, and so forth.
So at this point, you can just bring your awareness back to the full richness of the present experience around you. And then, in your mind's eye, bring to mind a stressful experience in life that often is associated with a ritual or repeated habitual behavior. So for example, if you find social gatherings to be difficult and you often feel anxious and then self-conscious and then a need to either drink or leave. Just visualize that experience. If the thought of returning home or family gatherings activates certain compulsive behaviors, sometimes we might have compulsive behaviors when we feel tired, overworked, stressed, They might be associated with compulsive eating, shopping, texting, using Tinder, Amazon, Netflix. Essentially, compulsive behaviors are ways we, or acts that we are driven to, to alleviate an underlying sense of anxiety or discomfort along with a worrying, obsessive thinking mind. So see if any of this brings to mind any experience in your life and see if you can before you act out in your imagination you know visualize yourself shopping or eating or texting or hooking up with someone or just visualize that moment right before you give in to the compulsive behavior And try to visualize the experience as accurately as you can. If any recent memory comes to mind, use that. Or if you have a very visual imagination, if you could think of a situation that would be distressing and one where you'd start being very self-conscious or filled with worrying thoughts, use that. So first thing we would do in this situation is just note and label the experience itself. So what kind of thought do you tend to think in this difficult situation? Do you worry? Do you become self-critical? Do you start feeling judgmental of others? Do you start 
catastrophizing future events. See what kind of thoughts are triggered by difficult situations and just label those thoughts. I'm worrying. I'm angry, resentful. I'm disappointed. Just continue to label the experience. And you'll note, as you label the experience, then no matter what it is you'd normally think about, it changes the way you perceive Labeling activates an entirely different area of consciousness. Now let go of labeling and again visualize as closely and as accurately as you can a situation that's really uncomfortable, that you really tend to avoid. A difficult, conflictual conversation with a roommate, a boss, a co-worker, a family member, um, someone you're in a relationship with, a professional relationship. Just visualize a really uncomfortable conversation and then go into the body with your attention and find the area of your body that becomes slightly clenched and contracted. Very often if it's a difficult conversation that could involve feelings of abandonment such as with a family member or a person we're in a relationship with, the feeling might be a tightness in the chest. If we have a tendency to shut down interpersonally, the thought of a difficult, conflictual conversation might lead to tightening in the throat. If we're frightened of being controlled or picked on, we might start to find our abdomen's tight. Just find the distress and soften around it. So if you feel a tightening in your belly, soften the muscles in the chest, in the buttocks, in the legs. If you feel tightness in your chest, relax the shoulders and the arms. Wherever you feel the physical expression of anxiety or fear or loneliness, just relax around it and breathe into it. Soften it. The less physical stress, the more we detach from thoughts, the less likely the compulsive behavior will be overpowering.
And finally, for the third practice, again, visualize yourself at a difficult situation. It could be the same or a different one. A really awkward conversation you've been avoiding with someone that you feel really a desire to just not address an important issue with. And now let's see if we can deflect our attention to a different set of thoughts than what naturally arise. Instead of worrying how badly the conversation could go, bring to mind all the times that you've had difficult conversation, or at least one time, where actually an issue got resolved. Bring to mind a place that you associate with peace that you could go after this conversation or a self-soothing ritual that almost invariably makes you feel really good that you could immediately follow this interaction with. The Buddha called this reflection on peace. So instead of thinking, worrying thoughts that amplify a challenge, think of thoughts of reward. Think of a friend you could connect with directly after you had this difficult conversation. At this point, I'm going to end the meditation knowing that the key to this practice is to do it in life mindfully whenever we start to feel the building of either anxiety or discomfort, the development of obsessive thinking, knowing that the next inevitable step will be a compulsive behavior, we can take these three tools and interrupt the circuit and rewire the brain. So whenever you're ready, you can open your eyes and see if you can bring with you into sighted external awareness some of the feelings that you've connected with.